This is the seventh and final talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues. Its title is Joy, recorded Sunday, May 12, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning we're going to talk about the virtue of joy, and we're going to conclude our series on the seven virtues, which are courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. <laughs> and joy is directly associated with the last stage of the spiritual path, enlightenment or liberation, or as we call it here, <laughs> uh, gnosis, which is the end of the path. And gnosis, uh, the word gnosis that we use comes from uh, the Greek, and it's the word that uh, Jesus used when he said, if you follow my teachings, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that word know in the Greek, which is the original, the Gospels were written, originally written in Greek, is gnosis, and it means a direct, unmediated perception of reality or the divine. Uh, and when he said the truth will set you free, he's talking about free, being set free from sin and the wages of sin, which are suffering and death. So it's not surprising that gnosis would generate a supreme joy. And this is why I say it's directly associated with the last and uh, final stage of the spiritual path. Uh, here's some expressions of this. Uh, Shankara, who is a great Hindu mystic, the uh, 8th century, writes, in celebration of his enlightenment, by the way, the ego has disappeared. I have realized my identity with Brahman. I have arisen above my ignorance and my knowledge of this seeming universe. What is this joy I feel? Who shall measure it? I know nothing but joy, limitless and unbounded. And he goes on, by the way, if you read the uh, Crest Jewel of Discrimination, where this is taken from, on and on and on, uh, describing this joy. Here's a 12th century Tibetan nun, Machig Ongjo, and she writes, Spontaneous liberation is the great bliss itself. It is the Dharmakaya, beginningless beyond name and words. The natural state, spontaneity, arises by itself. This is the bliss of knowing myself as not separate. So she's expressing the same thing in a different way. He's talking about realizing his unity with Brahman, his oneness, not no separation. And she's talking about realizing this, just this fact. There is no separation, ultimately, between anything. And the great Sufi poet Rumi exclaims, I have become senseless. I have fallen into selflessness. In absolute selflessness, how joyful I am with my true self. And again, we have a slightly different angle, but this idea that the root of our problem is the self. The self is the limiting, uh, apparently limiting, bounded entity we think we are, and that's what causes our sense of separation. So uh, falling into selflessness uh, is to suddenly see that all boundaries are just imaginary. And as he says, how joyful I am. And then Catherine of Siena, a great Christian mystic, writes, Oh, how blessed is the soul who, while still in her mortal body, enjoys the reward of immortality. And, of course, this is something that, uh, under delusion, everybody fears. Uh, ultimately, this fear of death, that uh, even if we're not thinking about it, consciously resides in us like a little time bomb ready to go off. And as Jesus said, his teachings, uh, if you follow them and you discover the truth, know the truth for yourself, they free you from this fear of death because if there is no self, there's no one to die. There's, no one is going to really, truly die. So this, uh, this also generates the supreme joy. It's like uh, one of the examples I, or metaphors I like to use is if you went to the doctor and uh, he told you you had cancer. And you uh, took x-rays and so forth, and you'd come home, and you would be just uh, miserable. You'd really be suffering, and all the things that go through your mind and so forth. And then a week later, if he uh, called you up and said, oh, I, I made a mistake. Uh, we got your x-rays mixed up with somebody else. You don't have cancer. You're perfectly okay. Just think of the joy you'd, you'd experience uh, in that situation. And this is a similar sort of thing. 
These testimonies to the joy of Gnosis, of liberation, go all the way back to shamanic times. Uh, here's a report by Ayu, who was an Oglulic Eskimo, and of course he didn't live in ancient times, but we assume that the shamanic cultures were preserved more intact than, than our cultures. And here's what he writes about his experiences becoming a shaman. Then I sought solitude, and here I soon became very melancholy. I would sometimes fall into weeping and felt unhappy without knowing why. Then, for no reason, all would suddenly be changed, and I felt a great inexplicable joy, a joy so powerful that I could not restrain it, but had to break into song, a mighty song with only room for one word, joy, joy, joy. And then in the midst of such a mysterious and overwhelming delight, I became a shaman, not knowing myself how it came about. But I was a shaman. I could see and hear in a totally different way. I had gained my kamanek, my shaman light. Now, notice the interesting thing about this description. Uh, it follows the classic pattern of being preceded by this period of kenosis, which I talked about last time. I'll talk about it a little bit more. Of emptiness, of being in solitude and almost like a despair and uh, being totally lost. And it, you, if you read through the mystics, you'll find that this is um, uh, very common. In fact, every detailed report that I've ever run across has been some period like this, some movement through some sort of uh, a death. Uh, one of the most striking is uh, Ramana Maharshi's experience, which was actually the experience of uh, entering into the death experience and allowing that ego self to just totally die and coming out the other end and realizing, well, he wasn't, he hadn't been that ego self to begin with. There's one other uh, modern uh, mystic that I know of, uh, John Wren Lewis, who actually got enlightened when he died. He had a uh, near-death experience anyway. He was poisoned on a bus in Thailand and uh, taken off to the hospital, and they thought he had died, and, but they did manage to revive him, and he woke up and he was enlightened. And he hadn't been on a mystical path at all. Uh, but suddenly he understood what all the mystics were talking about. So this, uh, this being preceded by this stage of uh, this feeling lost or melancholy or like you're dying, uh, it shows up even here, all the way back in shamanic practices. Now, uh, of course, Gnostics aren't the only ones to experience any joy in life. Uh, everybody, uh, almost everybody at least, I think, experiences joy sometime in life. Although, I must say from my own experience, absolutely nothing like this kind of joy. And also, by the way, the joys and, and blisses and beauties that you can experience along the way on a spiritual path. In my own life, I had, um, looking back on it, maybe a few little experiences that now looking back on, I'd say, well, yes, those were spiritual experiences, even though I didn't know at the time. But the, uh, uh, truly speaking, spiritual joy and spiritual bliss is, makes, uh, uh, sensory joys and blisses seem, uh, very mild in comparison. Uh, and so, uh, joy is not just confined to the final stage of a path. In fact, indirectly, it can be associated with all stages of a spiritual path, uh, basically. Uh, for instance, in the first stage, which is the awakening of faith, uh, most people uh, have this happen in, in a state of crisis or exhaustion. It's interesting that this always repeats itself, this pattern. In fact, you move from one stage to another by exhausting one stage and sort of feeling like you can't, you're not going any farther, and then suddenly something happens and you move into the next one. So even the beginning, the whole path starts this way. But uh, most people, if they come to a point in their lives, a point of a real crisis, or a point where their the direction of their life uh, has been a kind of exhausted. They don't know what to do next, and they fall into this kind of uh, uh, seemingly feeling lost. Two uh, good contemporary examples of that are Simone Weil, or Vail, as I'm told her name is properly pronounced, uh, who was a 20th century uh, French mystic. And she, um, her first spiritual experience, her awakening of her, her spiritual life, happened after she had been in Spain. And she'd gone to Spain during the 30s to um, fight with the loyalists against the fascists. And the whole uh, the effort collapsed. The fascists won in Spain. 
and she uh, also had been severely burned by um, uh, some hot oil and stuff, and so she was in sort of miserable shape, both physically and uh, psychologically. And she was listening to, and she also had a dreadful migraine headache. She was suffered from migraine headaches, and she was listening to uh, Gregorian chants, and uh, suddenly she had this experience of Christ, just a, a direct, immediate experience of Christ, and that's what started her on her spiritual path. And that's kind of a more dramatic, sudden awakening. Uh, an awakening of faith can also be more gradual. And another classic example from our time is Leo uh, Tolstoy. He wrote a little book called Confessions, a very interesting little book. You might want to read it sometime. And he describes at the height of his success, his literary success, and he was one of these authors who was acclaimed in his own time. He didn't have to wait until he died. People uh, knew he was a great author, and he was wealthy, and he was famous. Uh, and at the height of all this, uh, all the pleasure and joy of his life dried up for him. What was the point? You know, this uh, all this... Um, uh, sensory pleasures that he had, this villa in uh, Russia and the servants and the parties and all the people who came to lionize him and whatnot, and even the uh, more uh, psychological pleasures of uh, fame and uh, whatnot didn't mean anything to him. He, he saw through their, uh, how empty they were. And so he fell into this deep depression, and he was working on a book, by the way, there's a little footnote, uh, he mentions he's working on a book, and this was something like, um, it was either War and Peace or uh, Anna Karina, one of his great famous ones. But uh, he himself was taking no pleasure in this. And he was really desperate. He, was, he became suicidal. And he writes about how he had to hide the rope from himself. He had to hide all the ropes around there because he was so tempted to commit suicide. And then he started noticing the peasants who worked on his estate. And their simple joy they had in life because of their religious faith. And he began to envy them. Here he was, this wealthy, famous man. He was envying these peasants. And slowly but surely, he began to find that faith in his own life. And I don't know, it took a period of a year or so, his whole life turned around. Uh, so this is a, an example of a gradual awakening of faith. Uh, anyway, the awakening of faith itself uh, generates joy because for most people, uh, it comes in a period where you're feeling lost, like you, you're at the end of your rope, that life has lost uh, any purpose for you. And so this discovery generates joy. In the second stage, which is investigation of teachings, people who have the sort of awakening of faith, usually what they do is run out and start reading and going to uh, groups like this or churches or whatever. Uh, there's the joy of learning, because you're suddenly exposed to uh, new ways of thinking about the world, new ways of experiencing the world. And this is, uh, I mean, a common joy people have. Young people usually have it in a school, if they have an interest in school, the joy of learning. Uh, and it can be very exciting. It's a kind of a, a thrilling joy, an excitement. Almost, it can be sometimes feverish. I know it when I uh, got wind of this other dimension to reality and, uh, and really start pursuing it. I was, I'd devour books, you know, in the beginning, like, you know, uh, Big Mac hamburgers or something. Uh, but there's also in this, there's also something else, and that is, they begin to have intuitions of uh, uh, spiritual joys that are possible, that are that are joys to come. And Rumi writes about this uh, when he says, Would that you could know yourself for a time. Would that you saw a sign of your own beautiful face. Then you would not sleep in water and clay like an animal. You would go to the house of joy of all lovely spirits. You would travel to your every corner to make yourself manifest, for a hidden treasure has remained concealed within you. And just this beginning to uh, get just some sense that this is true, there's some something's already inside, something's hidden in there that you can unlock, and that's really what spiritual path is about. It's unlocking something that's already there. Uh, that creates a kind of a joy, uh, intimations of things to come. And then the third stage, uh, which I call the unification of self, uh, which happens really when people make a, a true, firm commitment to a spiritual path. Uh, they, they, after investigating lots of teachings and going to other teachers and so forth, 
finally, you have to settle down with one set of practices. Uh, they may not be a conventional set of practices, but you really have to um, realize that you this this is for most people going to take a while, and you need to really delve into uh, these practices and stop being such a dilettante. And also, uh, it's not just accepting the disciplines of certain practices, but more deeply, it's really making the spiritual path a priority in your life. And when this happens, and it's something I say that happens, it's not something you can will so much. Um, a lot of people toy with it. They, they sort of make a commitment, and then they don't, they're not sure, and they come back, and they make it again and again. But at some point, it really sticks, and there's a kind of turnaround in your life. And uh, it suddenly makes everything very uh, much easier. Because once you have this as a priority in your life, everything else starts to fall into place. Family, job, career, whatever it is, uh, the most important thing in your life is being a spiritual seeker. So uh, then you have a, a standard by which to judge other things. So for instance, if you're, uh, if maybe you have a, a, a guru that you're very personally involved with who lives in a certain place and you get a job offer for a little bit more money to go off to Timbuktu or something, you turn it down. There's no question because it's more important to be in this place with your guru at that time. Uh, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe uh, uh, you get an offer to go someplace where you can do your spiritual practice for less money while you take it. In other words, money is no longer the standard. That's just one example. But you'll find lots of things, even down to how you plan your daily schedule. All starts to become easier once there's that uh, firm commitment. And I call it unification of self because most people are in conflict all the time. They're being pulled this way and that way, and what should I do, and so forth. And all that sort of comes together. And it's not that you no longer ever have conflict in your life, but you have this... Uh, this leading uh, direction in your life that uh, that you follow, but also starts to pull you along as well. Brother Lawrence describes uh, what this commitment ultimately entails, but at least to uh, understand uh, to understand this, what you're getting into is important. He says we must give ourselves to God entirely and in complete abandonment in the temporal and spiritual realms, finding joy in carrying out His will whether he leads us by the way of suffering or of consolations. For it is all the same to one who is completely abandoned. In other words, it's no longer a question of um, uh, whether you're going to like this or not or whatever. There's pursuing a spiritual path, you pursue it, uh, as Simone Weil says, uh, constantly through suffering and joy. Those things start to become less relevant in your life, whether you like things or not. And this um, commitment in your life uh, produces a, a deeper joy than, than just that joy of uh, initial learning. Not that that's going to die away. These joys sort of can be accumulative. But at least in my experience, it suddenly produced a, the joy of having some purpose, some meaning in my life, which I had been lacking for uh, a number of years. And so once again, it wasn't something that was always necessarily in the forefront of uh, consciousness, but it had that, that settled into that, that deep sense of having uh, meaning, having purpose. And that gives you a kind of a joy, more of a, maybe a contentment, uh, but that is a similar sort of experience. Anyway, once this commitment's made, this uh, propels you into the next stage, and which is the purification of mind and heart. And when I discussed patience, when I was talking about the virtue of patience, which is the virtue that's associated with this stage, I said that for most people, this is the longest stage and it requires the most effort. So some people are smiling here. Uh, and it's, uh, it can go on for years and uh, years, actually. It all depends on different people have their own rhythm in spiritual life. So it's useless comparing yourself to other people. Uh, but it just in general, it's the longest stage for most people. And it does require usually a lot of work. It's when you really dig into the practices in the beginning. It's hard to establish the discipline in your life. And it's hard to uh, remember your precepts if you've taken precept practices and all that. And you have to work at it. But there are also joys to be had as well, even in this stage. It's not all just a dull grind. Uh, for instance, there are the joys that you get from insights you have in meditation. Uh, the Buddha describes uh, what happens when you meditate on impermanence. He says, Whenever he contemplates the rise and fall of existence, the monk is filled with the joyful nectar of wisdom. 
why I contemplating impermanence, particularly in here, because as you uh, bec become aware of impermanence, really become aware of impermanence, not just as a philosophical idea, but you begin to actually notice in your own experience how everything uh, is in movement. It's always arising and passing away. There's nothing to grasp onto. Uh, you begin to see the futility of your own efforts to grasp and hold on to things. And that uh, naturally gets you to relax a little bit to take life with a, a little bit more of a grain of salt, as we say. And this starts to fill you with a kind of joy. Uh, again, this is deeper and deeper sorts of joys, not necessarily a jumping up and down uh, uh, Hare Krishna sort of uh, expression. There's also actually the joy of practicing the precepts in a disciplined manner. And most paths have a set of precepts, and they're, they're not just ideals sort of to try to live up to. They're actually things to put into practice and to say, what would happen if I actually tried to do this, knowing you're going to fail and fail and fail at first? But they are tools to show you something, really. And here's what uh, the Hasidic master, Manaham Nahum, writes about practicing precepts, which he calls the God's commandments. The real fulfilling of any commandment lies in becoming attached to God. Thus the commandment is rewarded by the nearness to God that the one who performs it feels, the joy of spirit that lies within the deed. Now, this is uh, kind of subtle, and if you haven't worked with precepts, you might not know what he's talking about. You, you have to work with the precepts to understand this. But at a certain point... The precepts for most people usually are a kind of burden. They're sort of rules that you sort of, they think of it that way. You have to follow and so forth. But when you start to, uh, to work with the precepts and when you start to really practice them in a selfless manner, you start to feel this, as he puts it, this nearness to God. You start to feel, uh, this sense of the divine uh, presence entering into your own actions. And so well, when he says this, I think it's beautifully put, he says, uh, you've, you've discovered the joy of spirit that lies within the deed. It's not doing uh, good deeds for the purpose of getting some reward later, like God's going to reward you when you get to heaven or something. The uh, Virtue is its own reward. It's, it's an old cliche, but there's a, a tremendous spiritual truth in that. In the actual doing of it, there's the joy. And then, of course, most important is cultivating uh, the joy of love and compassion in general towards other beings. Uh, Patanjali's, who's not known as a bhakti, but he writes about this. Uh, he says, cultivating goodwill, compassion, joyfulness, and equanimity towards all objects, whether they are pleasant or unpleasant, helpful or harmful, purifies the mind. Again, it's this cutting through... Uh, our selfish attitude of what we can get for ourselves or what's going to harm us and looking at life through those uh, lenses of, of a limitation and to start to take them off. And that's when uh, this, this sense of compassion uh, and love just starts to flow out. And then next in the fifth stage, which is the illumination of mind and heart, uh, the, this is the stage where this effort at purification begins to pay off, so to speak. Uh, this is when uh, joys start to uh, manifest quite uh, frequently. Ananda Moyamai, who's a great Hindu mystic from this century, she sums it up this way. She says, Just as thoughts about your home crowd into your mind as you draw nearer to your dwelling place, so also the closer you get to God, the greater the joy derived from the ever-increasing variety of experiences of the divine. Indeed, as you advance to your real home, you realize more and more of this joy. So it's just like if you've been traveling and you're weary of traveling and you're coming home, uh, you know, as you get closer and closer, you, you start feeling the sense of joy picking up. But the same thing's true spiritually as you get closer and closer to home. Um, most seekers start to experience what in Christian terms is called consolations, uh, visions, uh, guidance, uh, bliss, uh, uh, not even necessarily big dramatic ones, but just this little uh, flashes of beauty during the course of the day and the lightness and so forth. And it's not just these sort of peak experiences, but there's also the ongoing uh, joy of being freed from 
the kinds of limitations that you've had. Because during the course of a spiritual path, if you do these practices and if you uh, actually uh, purify your heart and mind, what you're purifying your heart and mind of are the limitations that you've lived with all your life. And they start to fall off even before you arrive at the end of the path. Uh, and you start to gain a true freedom. Freedom from your own likes and dislikes, for instance. Um, just the, the things that used to bother you no longer bother you so much. Catherine of Siena writes about this, particularly in relation to the judgmental mind. And she says, They who live in this gentle light of grace find joy in everything. They do not sit in judgment on my servants or anyone else, but rejoice in every situation and in every way of living they see, saying, Thanks to you, Eternal Father, that in your house there are so many dwelling places. This is true not only of good things. Even when they see something that is clearly sinful, they do not pass judgment, but rather feel a holy and genuine compassion. That's a wonderful expression, and it's very important here, I think, that she talks about this, uh, not to sit in judgment because people have different ways of uh, living in the world. And this can become quite a problem for spiritual seekers, particularly at this stage. Because they, they know they are getting free, uh, old pride comes in and starts to want to claim this, and they, and they see that they've made this progress, and then they look down at other people and they think, oh, th you should be on a spiritual path, and you should be on a spiritual path, and this is the only way to go. And they can actually, if they carry this to extreme, if pride really takes over, they can become very obnoxious. You know, this is uh, self-righteous people uh, are very obnoxious. There's nothing worse than a, than a false saint uh, in this sense, you know. So, and she's saying specifically, you know, that, that, that recognize that all this is the expression of the divine. Uh, thanks to you, eternal father, that in your house there are so many dwelling places, so many ways of being, is what she's saying. And then we come to the sixth stage, kenosis, which I mentioned already, said a little bit about, which is this state of emptiness, which, uh, John of the Cross called, uh, the dark night of the soul. Uh, the spiritual dark night. He also talks about a dark night, which you may experience earlier, which is just going through periods where one stage is ending and uh, your old life is coming to an end. You no longer uh, have as uh, you don't have as much fun when you go to parties or those things. Things that uh, not only do the things that used to bother you no longer bother you, but the things that used to give you a lot of pleasure no longer <laughs> give you so much pleasure. But uh, finally, you come to the stage where even your spiritual practices don't work anymore. Uh, Ramana Maharshi writes about that. He says, sadhana, which is the Hindu term for spiritual practice, is uh, necessary for removing obstacles. But eventually you come to the place where sadhana does not work anymore. And that's the place where not even your guru can help you. You're, you're on your own. And this is the stage of uh, kenosis. Uh, and in uh, kenosis, uh, of course, there's uh, no joy, overtly anyway. There's nothing in kenosis. Uh, Zen master Haikyun describes it this way, except for occasional feelings of uneasiness and despair, it is like death itself. But we could talk about uh, perhaps here a, a latent joy, because unbeknownst to the seeker, this very stage contains the seed of the supreme joy. As I said before, I, I don't know of anybody who didn't pass through this stage in some degree or some form and they usually don't know it. At least uh, I've never heard of anybody who knew what was happening to them. And certainly in my experience, I didn't. In fact, in my experience, I felt the whole spiritual path had been a failure. I just gave it up. Because I'd given up everything else, I was out on a limb. I mean, I had nothing to go back to. So I was stuck. And that's one of the keys. If you haven't given up everything else, when you get to this point, you give up the spiritual path, but you have something else to go back to. You say, oh, well, maybe I'll go back to school and be a lawyer after all or something, you know. But if you've really purified your heart and mind, there's nothing to go back to. So when you get to this place, and even you have to give up your spiritual practice, then you're stuck. Then there's nothing to do. Uh, so uh, John of the Cross uh, writes about those who are fortunate enough to arrive at this stage, even though the dark night impoverishes and empties them of all possessions and natural affections, 
It does so only that they may reach out divinely to the enjoyment of all earthly and heavenly things with a general freedom of spirit in them all. So this is what I mean. It contains the seed of this supreme joy in everything. And notice he's a Christian mystic, and Christian mystics are often accused of being otherworldly or anti-worldly. And in all uh, spiritual paths, and initially there's, uh, you have to turn away from the world and uh, break your attachments to worldly things, but it's not about leaving the world. He talks about this coming back and, uh, and experiencing this divine enjoyment of all earthly and heavenly things with a general freedom of spirit in them all. Very important. It's just what the Buddhists say when they say samsara and nirvana are ultimately one. They're not to be separated. This is nirvana, if you only could see it. So, uh, really, kenosis is a springboard to gnosis, and so the, the very joy that's going to blossom and flower in gnosis is already present there. Uh, Haikun describes what happens out of this, uh, this sense of this state of uneasiness. All of a sudden, he finds his mind and body wiped out of existence. This is what is known as letting go your hold. Then Yunman adds, then there will be a plunging into the unknown with a cry, ah, this. So we come full circle back to uh, the supreme joy that's experienced in Gnosis. But uh, if joy is a uh, something to be experienced at all stages on the spiritual path, in a practical sense, we can ask the question, how do we actually uh, cultivate it at each stage? Most of these descriptions uh, talk about joy as something that sort of happens spontaneously to the seeker at a certain stage. But joy is actually a virtue. It's a, certainly, we call it a virtue, and it's a virtue in many traditions, and a virtue means it's something you should try to practice. In the Jewish tradition, it's actually a mitzvah, and a mitzvah means it's a spiritual obligation. You're obliged to be joyful. Now, that sounds strange to us, and immediately there, most people's reaction is, but what if I don't feel joyful? How can you be joyful if you don't feel joyful? And, uh, of course, the trick here is, uh, and it's the trick that applies to all the virtues and all the precepts, is you have to do before you know. You have to act before you know. We always want to know before we do. And to uh, cultivate compassion, you have to start acting compassionately before you feel compassion. To cultivate charity, you have to act, start acting charitably. You have to start doing charitable deeds before you actually feel like being charitable. And uh, in terms of gratitude, you have to start getting the practice and habit of giving thanks before you feel thankful. And, of course, my uh, classic example of this is swimming. Uh, in order to learn how to swim, you have to get in the water. People say, well, I don't want to get in the water because I don't know how to swim. Well, the only way you learn how to swim is to get in the water. You can receive some instruction beforehand on dry land, what to do when you get in the water, you know, move your arms like this and kick your feet or whatever. <laughs> but actually, to learn to swim, you have to get in the water. And this is uh, absolutely true in the spiritual practice. It's through the doing that you learn, and not the other way around. And our, our ego minds always want to know first why, because we want to be safe. The ego says, well, is, maybe I'll drown. I mean, are you, can you really assure me that I won't drown? No, nobody can assure you of that. Jump in. At some point, jump in. Then you will know. Those who taste know. So uh, the spiritual fact of the matter is that this joy, even the supreme joy and bliss, is already inherent inside you. It is already there. You are, as the Hindus say, Satchit Ananda, being consciousness bliss. It's not something that you have to work up. Although in the beginning, everybody will try this, it's, and it's, it's good you try it, it's good you try and fail and see what doesn't work. If you're practicing uh, loving your neighbor, for instance, so almost everybody, including myself, the first thing you do is go out and you, you find somebody you don't like and you start to practice with them, and you try to work up nice feelings about them. And you can do a little bit, and then they, they, they don't last. You have to, what you're learning here is that won't work, but what will work is removing obstacles. 
because this is our nature. The trouble is it's veiled, as the Sufis say, or it's obstructed, as the Buddhists say. There are obstacles. That's why we don't experience it and see it. And the whole spiritual path is really about removing obstacles, removing veils, not creating anything new. It's already there. So uh, one of the most obvious and immediate obstacles to joy specifically are negative self-defeating thoughts that arise in your mind. So you find yourself in the, uh, various situations or with various people and you say, well, I don't like that person. I don't like this situation. Or you're confronted with a spiritual practice and you say, I can't do this. It's too difficult. Or you're reading some spiritual book and you say, I can't understand this. Already those thoughts are, are uh, veiling the joy that's there. So what, what can you do about it? The first thing to do is to learn to observe those thoughts, to notice them. This is why we do this mindfulness practice. Most people, they are not aware that this is going on. They're not even aware that they're having thoughts like this. That's just, that's just who they are. But if you start to do a little meditation practice where you start observing your thoughts, you can observe them in various situations. You can see this thought arising. This is your obstacle. Now, it's not about suppressing the thought and thinking that's an evil thought, because there you go with another negative thought. It's simply about, instead of getting involved with the thought, identifying with it, just let it go. Just let it be. If you watch for a while, this is what the Buddha said about watching impermanence. It applies to your own thoughts. They, uh, they self-liberate, as the Tibetans say, right where they are. You don't have to do anything about them. You just let them go. They, they're there, and then they're gone. And if you are uh, detached from them, then they don't leave any traces. They just poof, and they're gone. And in that detachment, these then these thoughts move sort of to the periphery of consciousness. Not that they won't arise. You've got at least one lifetime, if not thousands of lifetimes of conditioning and habit here. But they won't grab you. And in that space, without you doing anything, that's where you start to experience a little bit of joy, a little bit of beauty. That's where you look at that person you didn't like, and the mind says, I don't like that person. And you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Thank you, Eternal Father, for uh, this little manifestation. It's a, a little a little bit different. A little uh, God's always, you know, uh, showing different aspects. This whole thing is nothing but God's uh, showing all the possibilities of form that God has. And they're infinite, so it's going to go on infinitely. Uh, so uh, this, if you start to um, observe and see what is the obstacle in your own life, and for different people it will be different. I mean, uh, thought will be a big one for everybody, but uh, the exact nature of your thought will be different for you. Some people don't have any confidence. I can't do this, I can't do that. It's not true. How do you know? Do, and then you'll know. But that thought stops them from doing. Some people say, oh, I know all about that already. That's just the opposite. I don't have to do that. Hey, watch. Your thought is, in these cases, it's always the obstacle. Just let it go and do the practice and you will see. You'll also come to understand what Teresa Avila meant when she said, how the soul can have trials and afflictions and yet be in peace. This is very important, how the soul can have trials and afflictions and yet be in peace. Many people think that a spiritual path leads to some state where the normal trials and afflictions and stuff don't arise. And it is not true. They don't bother you, is perhaps a better way to put it. There's a, a, a movie called Lawrence of Arabia. Who's seen Lawrence of Arabia? Anyone seen Yes. <laughs> There's a little scene where in the beginning, uh, Lawrence has got a, a match and he's he, a uh, lit match and he's putting it out by squeezing his fingers and he makes a big show of it. He's in an office, in an army office, in a headquarters office and he puts the match out and then he gets called off to some place and he comes back and this little uh, corporal or something was watching him and he's now got the match and it's lit and he puts it out with his fingers and he goes, ouch, he says, that hurts. And Lawrence says, well, of course it hurts. He says, well, what's the trick then? He says, the trick is not to mind that it hurts. And that's not quite exactly what happens on the spiritual path, but this is, this is the, um, the, the judo in here. It's not that you get rid of life. It's that you get rid of that target that is the, uh, causes the suffering when life impinges on it. 
That's what you get rid of. So this is what she means by being at peace, even if you have trials and afflictions. And then ultimately, what you want to strive for uh, is getting rid of that sense of self, of attaining that selflessness that Rumi talked about. And this is something that more and more you'll begin to experience on the spiritual path, even before uh, the last uh, stage, where the self just is seen through as being totally transparent. Because the self, the sense of self, however it manifests to you in whatever forms, is the obstacle to this inner bliss, this inner joy that's just naturally there. This is why Meister Eckhart says, Truly, if anyone had denied himself and had wholly forsaken himself, nothing could be for him a cross or sorrow or suffering. It would all be a delight to him, a happiness, a joy to his heart. So may you all ultimately discover this happiness and the joy of your own heart. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Um, I was talking to a, a teacher recently. Actually, it was that Catherine Ingram woman. I mean, you had her on your wall. <laughs> we had her on our wall. Right there, <laughs> we let her down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, picture, anyways. She talks about choosing freedom, etc. But um, she uh, talks about this uh, this unbelievable joy and bliss that starts um, being spontaneously liberated in a sense when the obstructions are uh, unveiled or whatever. Um, but she also talks about what goes hand in hand with that in her experience anyways, um, is this uh, unbelievable suffering as well. Um, maybe because the boundaries between you and others are, are no longer there. I mean, although she's deeply rooted in her, her identity of, of inherent happiness and joy, there's still this, this, uh, sensitivity, I guess, to the world that is, um, something, something that is, she felt was inevitable or something like that. And that people mistake that they're going to uh, you know, float off in the sun. Yes, definitely. Uh, when, you, uh, when you start feeling the boundaries of self-dissolve and when you start particularly start feeling compassion, which means literally to suffer with, compassion, to suffer with, uh, then the, uh, the, the kinds of suffering that you've screened out that you didn't want to look at in, in your life, do you know what I mean? You can no longer screen out. And so there is this, uh, there can be this tremendous sense of, uh, suffering for everybody. As long as there is, uh, self in there, the suffering hurts. Mm. If there is no self in there, the suffering is itself delight and sweetness and joy. I mean, I'm sorry, if there is no, yes, did I say that? If there is no self in there, I'm losing my mind this morning. You said it right. If there is no self in there, then that is, that, that compassion, that sense of suffering itself is the delight and the joy. Uh, I suggest reading um, uh, An Interrupted Life, Diary of Ellie, Eddie Hillison. I think I've talked about her before. I don't know. I gave one whole Sunday talk on her. She was uh, uh, a young woman who was uh, thrown into the Nazi concentration camps. And this is what it's really all about and the lessons she learned and how even in that situation was suffering all around her. And she just... So they experience it as love, essentially. As love, exactly. If there's no self in there, then there is no personal suffering. It sounds strange to say, but really suffering is not personal. Suffering is, see, we think it's personal. We, it's my suffering, and that's why we suffer. Do you know what I mean? Or it's your suffering, so we push them away. But suffering is what uh, it has in common. It's nothing personal about it whatsoever. That does mean it isn't intimate. As I, when I say, we don't really have a good word in the English language. Impersonal means it sounds cold or something. It's tremendously intimate, but not personal, if you can... Uh, understand what that might be like. So yes, um, you have to be willing to uh, experience that, the suffering of the world, so to speak. You know, um, the little story of St. Christopher? You know the story of St. Christopher? Oh, let's see if I can tell it quickly. It's worth telling. He goes, he's a big giant, and he and he's not too bright, but he thinks he'll, he's very strong. He wants to serve the most powerful king. So he goes goes off and searches for the most, most powerful king, and he finds uh, an earthly king. So he becomes his servant for a while, and 
Uh, he follows him, and then the earthly king uh, sees the devil one day and, and is terrified and rides back to his castle and bolts the doors. And Christopher says, well, what, who's that? And he says, that's the devil. And he says, well, he's more powerful than you, obviously. You're afraid of him, so I'll go serve the devil. So he goes serves the devil for a while. And then one day he uh, he's out with the devil. They're riding around the country, you know, creating havoc and so forth. And I don't know, uh, they see a, a, a cross on a church. And the, the shadow of the cross falls across the devil. He gets terrified. And he runs away. So Christopher says, well, uh, what was that all about? And the devil says, well, that was uh, the sign of Christ, you know. And uh, he says, well, obviously he's more powerful king than you are. So he goes looking for Christ, but he can't find Christ anywhere. You know, he goes all over the place. So finally, he gives up, doesn't know what to do anymore, settles down by a river, and uh, starts ferrying people across this river. He's a big giant. He carries them across. There's no ferry boat there, you know. So this is like his, by the way, stage of kenosis. Like, you know, nothing. He's just, he's given up, you know. And uh, this little, he ferries all sorts of people, big people and oxen and carries horses across and all this. And one day this little kid comes up and says, you carry me across the river. And he says, sure. And he says, uh, you might not be able to. He says, don't be silly. Jump on my shoulders. And he starts across the river and he starts staggering under the weight. And the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier and he's staggering and pulling him and, you know, and uh, finally he gets to the other side and he realizes this is Christ and he's been carrying the weight of the whole world on his shoulders. So this is what that little story is about. You have to be willing to carry the weight of the whole world on your shoulders. In a certain sense, you are responsible uh, for all the suffering in the world, not you personally, you know. So in that sense, yes. And uh, I think people, uh, you know, go through degrees of sensitivity to that on their spiritual path. So to summarize it, be to experience the supreme bliss, you have to be willing to... Um, be open to compassion. Sense. You could even say this, to, to experience the supreme bliss, you have to be willing to, to experience the supreme suffering, which is really what the story of Jesus' crucifixion is all about. Symbolically, you know. It might not happen to you, I mean, because some people will experience this more intensely than other people. But you have to be willing to. That's the key. And once you're willing to experience everything, that's the letting go of self. So they, they're two sides of the same coin. This is the duality. Our mind sets up a duality and says, in life there's suffering and there's joy. And then we are always moving towards the joy, trying to grasp the joy, hold on to the joy, and get rid of the suffering. And what we do not see is that it's one, it's just one. You know? As Rumi says, I searched the world over, there are no others. The bazaar has a single aisle, and, the, and there's one buyer. And that's it. There are no others. So as long as you're caught in that duality of not wanting a certain set of experiences, but wanting another set of experiences, that itself is what is the veil that hides the unity. It comes down to, as I, you know, say, like, you want the good cat, you don't want the bad cat, you know. You want the cat that purrs and sits in your lap and all that, but you don't want the cat that sheds and poops and, you know. But that's one cat there. So naturally, when our expectations of life are unrealistic, they, they, it's not that they're evil. It's just we're not living based on reality. We suffer. There's a paradox in that, obviously, but yes. Can you comment on Joseph Campbell's advice to follow your bliss? I think it's been way uh, misunderstood, <laughs> and I think uh, people have uh, taken in a very frivolous manner, uh, and I don't know exactly how he meant it. But if you uh, if you take it to mean that there is this limitless bliss inside you, which you will experience on a spiritual path, and to take that experience when you feel that bliss to follow that more deeply, to trust that, to have faith in that, then it's very good advice. If you, if you take it to mean in a superficial, worldly way, like, um, well, you know, I'd like to be rich, that's my bliss, so I'll follow my bliss and become rich, that's just what everybody does, you know. So uh, it, sometimes it, people, it, that's a nice phrase, and people can take that phrase and not really change their lives and transform their lives at all and feel they're being spiritual because Joseph Campbell said it. You see what I mean? And because bliss is a nice spiritual word. 
So as, as long as we're not being deceptive about it. But, but it, you know, the bliss that's experienced on a spiritual path, the, the joy and bliss of God is genuine. You know, the spiritual path is not about a lot of, uh, ultimately about a lot of disciplines and work and all that. That's part of it. It's ultimately about happiness. That's what it's all about, you know. I mean, if you want to speak really anthropomorphically, God wants you to be happy. That's all God wants. He just wants you to be happy. You're sitting here suffering, and you're right in the middle of the Garden of Eden, which God made for you. So he made you this wonderful garden, planted you down here, and here you are, woe is me, woe is me. And so God reaches out and says, what's the matter with you? You're right there, you know. You're up to your neck in water, and you're, and you're going around begging from door to door for a drink. That's another one of Rumi's lines. So the whole purpose is to be happy here, not to be um, uh, anything else, really. Yeah. And this just kind of ties into what you said. Um, and you mentioned earlier about self-righteousness and how, um, you know, being on a spiritual path, you can very easily you know, project all your own fears and whatever on other people. But I'm curious, in, in a world where it does feel like, you know, society's collapsing and, you know, then ecosystems are unraveling, I mean, how, I, I just get confused about, um, you know, being selfless or, or not, you know, having judgment, you know, not, not, you know, making those kind of, making decisions based <coughs> on, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Mm. Uh, let me just say there's a difference between exercising your rational faculties and making a judgment about a situation and what may or may not be the best way to go and being judgmental about a person's worth, so to speak. You know what I mean? So it's one thing to say, well, um, if we, I, I don't know, don't... Uh, cut back on using gasoline, uh, we're going to poison the atmosphere, and that's not going to be good for everybody. And then to go out and work for legislation or whatever that will have that effect. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing. And you can engage in that activity, and you can turn that into a spiritual practice precisely by engaging in it with a humility, Realizing that this is, even so, even it's, you may be very convinced it's still a relative judgment. You aren't God. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. You can take a, a chapter from Gandhi on this. You know, he said that, uh, the reason he refused to, to kill, the reason he was a pacifist, he said that even though I am personally convinced that India has a right to its independence and the British are wrong and all that, I, I can't know that absolutely. So I cannot take an absolute action, which to him was, Killing, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he even had the humility to say, I might be wrong. Maybe it's best for the British to be here. Mm -hmm. I might be. I don't think so, you know? So that, first A, that sort of humility. And then, can you engage in your social action with uh, the uh, compassionate attitude towards your adversaries? Uh, and this is where we, of course, the two things get confused. And what a judgmental mind means spiritually is then you start seeing your adversaries as the enemy, not as a human being who suffers just like you suffered, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But they're evil. They're responsible. None of it's my fault. It's all them, you see? And that starts driving this, these divisions and creating these, uh, reinforcing these boundaries and creates all the more suffering and so forth. So the whole engaging in social action uh, can itself be a wonderful practice, spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. The Buddha wrote about this. He said uh, he was talking about a justice and war even. A soldier, it's a famous discourse where the soldier said, uh, does the Buddha mean we shouldn't resist if uh, uh, you know enemies attack us or we shouldn't catch criminals and punish them and uh, struggle for justice in the world? And the Buddha says, um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically says, I never said uh, you shouldn't resist evil. Life is struggle, and you must resist evil in all its forms. Uh, and if you have to fight a war, a just war, you have to fight it. And if you have to, uh, you know, if they're criminals, you have to catch them and punish them. But he says, look to it that you don't do it for your own benefit, that there's no self in there that you're not doing it for some reward, you're not doing it to gain spoils of war, do you know what I mean? Right. You're, doing, you're purely in a selfless way 
serving justice, serving the cause of peace or whatever. You know? mm -hmm. So when you get out, and I've been a social activist, I don't even know my past, I was a revolutionary in the 60s, mm -hmm. I know how the passions can get stoked, and I know how that outrage can take over, and you, you know, can really just feel hatred you know, for people you feel are destroying uh, the earth or, or responsible for mass slaughter or something. You know? mm -hmm. So it's a powerful... Uh, place to practice and if you um my advice if if you try it and you are being <coughs> swept away by these sorts of feelings you aren't ready to be a social activist mm -hmm. retire a little bit go on retreat i mean you know get to know yourself a little bit first because otherwise you will end up being what you hate mm -hmm. you will that was my experience i ended up being ready to do all the things that i had originally objected to uh, about, for instance, the war in Vietnam. I was ready to put people up against the wall and machine gun them. The ends justified the means, whatever it took. I was ready to bomb, kill. I was. I looked my, in the mirror one day. I said, my God, what, you know. So it's really important. The motivation is that makes the difference here. Uh -huh. And that's where the spiritual work goes. So it's not about becoming a dummy and giving up your rational sense of judgment and, you know, not being able to say, hey, uh, you know, don't screw the garbage around the street. It causes a health hazard or something like that. This is using the rational mind for what it's created for. You're seeing a, a specific problem with a, you know, specific solution, being willing to listen to other people's views and all that and trying to get to the best thing without that, that, uh, ego slipping and saying they're bad. Liberals don't say people are evil. They say they're sick. You know, they're degenerate. You know, right. we have our own ways of doing it, but still it puts a wall between us. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Grace told a wonderful story about watching Ronald Reagan on television. You mind if I? Oh, and please she, do. And she's, you know, she's a liberal and she never liked Reagan or his policies and all that. And now he's got Alzheimer's, right? right. And his daughter uh, was starting to talk about it. She almost flicked the set off because, you know, Ronald okay, Reagan. Right. <laughs> but she said, oh, let me, let me listen, you know. And his daughter was talking about how she, when, when she was a child, he used to play, uh, help her do jigsaw puzzles. And now she goes over to his house and she mm -hmm. says, Dad, this is the way we do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, we were talking about before, compassion, suffering yeah. with. I was the same. Mm -hmm. I was at one with Reagan and his daughter. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of, you know, I mean, you allow that suffering to enter in, but rather than uh, in, the, in the beginning, it feels... Uh, painful and you know you, you, i don't dare open the gates and, and most people don't throw the gates open wisely all at once a little by little you know but the joy that's inherent in that the bliss is i don't want to even say balances out they are the same that you cannot have that joy and that sense of oneness without also having that sense of oh i understand ronald reagan's you know condition and the family condition i just i don't i don't struggle so much with with that adversarial approach to things. It's just the question of, uh, you know, what is the motivation in trying to, you know, as a counselor with young people, for instance, you know, to help improve their lives, you know, when knowing that, or, you know, coming from that place that, that suffering is, you know, just part of, part of our existence. And Are you a counselor that works with young people? Yeah. I'll give you one piece of advice. Uh, it's a little bit off what we're talking about, but maybe will be very helpful to you. And it's the advice, the, one of the major themes of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a great classic of Hinduism. And it was, uh, certainly, uh, Gandhi's, uh, one of his guiding principles. You have a right to the action, but not the fruit. And that means in any situation, you have a, a right, you have a duty, actually, to respond by trying to help people out, you know, trying to, uh, alleviate suffering wherever you find it and whatever. And particularly you as a counselor, that is your profession, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you don't have a right to the fruit means the outcome. Mm -hmm. It's the ego that thinks I'm going to solve this. You see, I'm going to, uh, straighten out this young man. And if he doesn't, uh, get straightened out, then either two things happen. There's self blame or, or you, bl you write him off in some way or whatever, do you know? Mm -hmm. And this is what Gandhi's talking about, and the Bhagavad Gita is talking about. The the uh, it's setting up this expectation that the world is going to work out the way I want it to work out, that inevitably creates suffering because it never works out exactly the way you want it. Mm 
you see? Mm -hmm. So if you act without the expectation, just act in the moment, doing as best you can, and then you'll always be in the moment and you'll always be acting and you'll never be looking back and, you know, blaming or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, you look back again, use your rational mind right. to see a mistake. You could right. do it better, but it. yeah. Uh -huh. But, uh, so Gandhi described, he said, you know, whatever I do, I do the best I know how. That's all anybody can do. It's just being realistic. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, if it doesn't work out, that's, that's up to God. How it's going to work is up to God, not up to me. And, and in every moment, he's just continuing to do the best he can do. There's no room in there for any of this, you know, hanging on to some image the way I wanted it to be, or, you know, you see what I mean? Or conversely, taking pride, starting to say, oh, what a great counselor I am. Look, I straightened out this guy, you know, you know, mm -hmm. both ways. So that's a wonderful, that's a very profound teaching. And it's something specific. Everybody can use it, but you, sounds like you could apply that and, Really watch and see what this really means in your own practice. You have the right to the action, but not the fruit. Mm -hmm. It's a very freeing uh, teaching. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bring this morning to a close. And uh, you're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library. Until we meet again, peace to you all.